0: Good day to you, listener. Uh, this is the Essentials of GMAT podcast with Aaron J. Schwartz. I'm your host, Aaron J. Schwartz. With me today is my guest, Colin Wildridge, another graduate of Binghamton University's Master's in Public Administration program. Colin, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Hey, it is a true and distinct pleasure. Real quick before we get started, I just want to check and make sure that I have your consent to record this session and make use of it for public consumption?
1: Yeah, please do.
0: Right on. Thank you very much for that, Colin. Colin, uh, I've gotten in touch with you, and you suggested that you might be interested in speaking to myself and the fine people about the concept of dangerous speech. Is that the case?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm. It's something that I'm quite
0: interested in. I think that I speak for everyone who's listening when I say that's also something that we're quite interested in. So, Colin, if you'd be so kind as to take it away, as you've heard from the previous format, uh, I will be stopping you periodically to ask you questions because I'm rude and have no manners, and also to ensure that we're making this as educational an opportunity as we can. That all right with you? Absolutely. I mean, I don't think
1: questions are ever really well. That's not true, but generally, questions are a positive thing. <laughs> Uh, yeah uh, so I guess before we talk about dangerous speech we should sort of define the parameters of speech in and of itself so uh, in this for the purposes of this discussion speech is just any anything that communicates some form of belief or message so you know that's anything written drawn painted art performance speaking, signing, et cetera. Like any of those could be considered speech because they communicate some form of idea um, to the viewer, or actually that's not even accurate, to the consumer of that particular form of speech. Um, and they, just as anything else in, in genocide and mass atrocity prevention, to use Waller's um, uh, imagery everything sort of stacks the wood for um, atrocity and speech is no, no different than that. Um, and speech is often a good indicator of the risks of mass atrocity and genocide and just group violence in general, as well as can be any active part of the process, as well as any active part of the prevention process. Mm-hmm. But so dangerous be... speech-
0: I'm Sorry so, to please. Cut you off. So it can be both preventative and harmful is what you're telling us.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you could say the same for most things in this situation. Very, very nice. Um, but in this case, um, dangerous speech is any speech that incites or condones violence against a group by its audience um that's a really general description it's sometimes a little difficult to tell the difference between hate speech and dangerous speech so clearly more clearly hate speech is any speech that threatens or humiliates or demeans a group of people on the basis of their identity um dangerous speech can be hate speech but not all hate speech is dangerous speech that's um, actually really helpful so to, for understanding. what Thank i you. think is- um, what's really important to know about dangerous speech is that it's actually a lot more common than it's thought and hate speech even more so, and both contribute to the possibilities of violence. Um, hate, dangerous speech though, can happen without violence happening. It, it's, it is an act in its own right um, that contributes to existing situations and as often can ignite a situation into violence, but violence may not happen from it. It's not a guarantee. Um, capacity to commit violence is also very important to in judging dangerous speech. But um, I think more importantly is to to talk about like the content and context of dangerous speech because that is really the core of why it's so impactful, why it has such such real repercussions. Um, And one of the most important contexts of dangerous speech is history. So in what historical setting and with what historical um, boundaries is speech being talked about in? Because if you're doing, if dangerous speech is being talked about in a historical context where the parts of dangerous speech, the content itself is accepted as normal, you will see probably a much more impactful um, outcome from dangerous speech than say, someone speaking dangerously in a place that has no history of those sentiments being acceptable. Um, And so that also comes from the speaker too. So, speakers, dangerous speech is most effective when the speaker is in a place of authority. That doesn't mean just political authority, but also you know, social authority. So anyone that the audience looks up to um, is a trusted source. Charisma doesn't hurt. Being popular doesn't hurt. And not all of these must be true for, you know the the speaker to be effective. Um, nor does it have to be universal. Um, so a speaker themselves personally may not be very popular or even you know that respected but the office that they sit in maybe and that lends them that lends them the same kind of ability for dangerous speech to impact the audience but it's it's very common for an audience who is fearful or has existing grievances Um, as well as having the capacity to commit violence, uh, being really vulnerable to acting on dangerous speech. And often insecurity, some sort of social or cultural insecurity, creates even more vulnerability because people are in a place where they hear these words and they they resonate with them and often we are at our most vulnerable, when we are at our most vulnerable is when we are most vulnerable to these sorts of sentiments becoming internalized and acted upon.
0: So does the situation already have to be vulnerable for dangerous speech to be as impactful as it could be?
1: I think it's, it's so hard to say because each context is different. Certainly. I think it has it has a lot to do with um, what is considered the norm and what is considered acceptable and then the capacity to commit violence. If an audience doesn't accept the sentiments being um, spoken on as acceptable or normal, it probably won't be that effective because they'll reject it out of hand as being an unacceptable form of speech. But if it's more considered more acceptable and something people are willing to listen to and think on and start to agree with and then they have the capacity to commit violence, then I think the situation lends itself to escalating very quickly. And it's a you make a great point. It's especially, it's especially dangerous when you're in a society with a history of intergroup violence, um, where there are systems of discrimination, not just, Um, not just existing grievances between groups, but actual systems that discriminate often increase the chances of violence. Although just existing say ethnic conflict could lead lend itself to that Um, polarization and weak governance create a lot of vulnerability for dangerous speech to become violence relatively quickly. Um, And then also economic insecurity and recent violence are lots of indicators that dangerous speech um, could become violent. These are all also existing risk factors for forms of atrocity and genocide in general, but dangerous speech becomes even more risky in these types of situations. And by no means is this an exhaustive list.
0: Right on. So you've used a term that I was wondering if you could go into a little bit more depth on and that term is capacity for violence. Right, so capacity for violence means does
1: the audience have relatively easy or at least access access to the means to commit mass violence? Um, Does every human being more or less, do take that, I should walk that back. Do most human beings have the capacity to kill another human being just because they inhabit a physical Bazi or there's something sharp around or whatever? Yes. But it takes a little bit more effort to, for mass violence. Um, so for example, is, is the audience easily armed? Are they able to arm themselves with deadly implements on a moment's notice that can be used to kill large groups of people? So for instance, uh, an indicator that dangerous speech could escalate into violence quickly in the United States is the fact that it's relatively easy to get a hold of firearms that have the, the capacity to kill num, a, num, a large number of people in a very small amount of time. Um, or just is the group coherent and able to strategize? So say, let's take an audience example. Is your average, let's say maybe concert crowd um, going to be able to create, to work in concert to kill a bunch of people quickly? Possibly. But you may see a lot of dissent because the crowd is diverse or you may see that the crowd doesn't really have much in the way of hurting people other than their physical bodies, which isn't very efficient versus if your audience is a group that likes to think of itself as a militia could escalate very quickly because they already have the capacity for that the teamwork and the interest in that sort of violence.
0: Thank you for clarifying that it makes me think a little bit about the Rwandan genocides and the way that many people during those genocides were killed with you know cutting implements like machetes or knives and so oh i'm sorry please
1: no 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 that's absolutely that's absolutely true um armament doesn't necessarily mean you don't just need guns like you need just access to the tools to make it feasible and more importantly to have One person, but on the basis of how we define genocide and mass atrocity, generally one human being acting alone can kill a lot of people. That's not necessarily a mass atrocity. Generally, you need coordination of a group. And so if the group is able to arm itself with tools, axes, whatever it is that they can get their hands on and are able to commit that violence and are open to doing so, that's a capacity for violence. The, the the easier it is for them to escalate, the more capacity there is for violence, which is in some ways a grand generalization on my part. But for the purposes of this
0: conversation, I think that is a decent understanding. Thank you for that. And I absolutely understand the need for certain levels of generalization because too much specificity would make, essentially, this conversation useless to people. So I thank you for yeah, being willing to do that. Um, and I really appreciate the way that you made the distinction between a single individual engaging in an atrocity, like, say, the person responsible for the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand versus much more organized efforts that involve organizations.
1: Right. And you you can have these sorts of instances feeding into each other. A hate crime can often be an indicator or a risk factor or even an accelerant for mass atrocity, even if it's one person. Like you're saying, like the Christchurch example was absolutely a hate crime, was absolutely an atrocity and an affront to human dignity that also presents itself as a risk for larger mass atrocities. And it makes an excellent point because that same person used a medium to basically make their atrocity a piece of performance, a form of speech through a medium and dangerous speech is often, you know, catalyzed by the medium. Is it able to be consumed widely? More importantly, is it a trusted source of information? If you're, often people will be more open to dangerous speech if it comes from a medium that they trust. So if Facebook is your primary mode of information gathering, then Facebook is going to be a place where you're more vulnerable to dangerous speech versus if you never listen to the radio and you just happen to turn it on and there's some dangerous speech there um it's even more risky when the the, the medium that that's being used has a monopoly on information so if we're talking about um like you said the Ro- the Rwanda example um the RTM uh, RTLM uh had a kind of a monopoly on a lot of people's sources as a someone as a lot of people's source of information so it was not only a trusted source it was one of the only sources you had other than face-to-face contact
0: with others that makes sense and it seems like we come back to facebook a lot in some of these conversations already uh which makes a lot of sense we'll, we'll get more into that but then
1: you also have the dangers of what if a source is also Um, rhetoric, and the also just the rhetorical, um, not tropes, but the the aspects of rhetorical information, such as, um, I hate to hone in, they I think they get probably more publicity than they should, even in the modern day, but Nazis were master, masters of propaganda, creating trusted news sources, putting a monopoly on information from the state. And more importantly, knowing how performance art and music elevated their message. They used these different areas that make people vulnerable to dangerous speech to put out a toxic message in a context where people were vulnerable, where they were afraid, had grievances, a capacity to commit violence, were insecure in a highly polarized society. So you can use these examples to show how dangerous speech plays out. And unfortunately, in the society, in the United States, that is a really cogent example, but it does, it isn't just limited to European and white American context. It's, it, these dangerous speech plays out across countless societies, regardless of their makeup.
0: That would make sense. I mean, anytime you have a society, that has limited resources, you're going to find that, unfortunately, uh, there's the creation of a subset of individuals who are then made to be victimized. You create that sort of hierarchy.
1: Yes, especially when you're encountering elite factionalization. So when a country's politics or economics is kind of involved in winner-take-all competitions, so those who are the winners Generally, need to deflect some form of responsibility to keep those that allow them to produce resources um, away from punishing them for hoarding resources.
0: Interesting. Do or are you rather aware of any sort of research that would suggest that there tends to be dangerous speech coming from the higher end of the socioeconomic spectrum?
1: I think that. I am unaware of any specific
0: um,
1: research, but I think it has a lot to do with who is able to control forms of information. Uh, Like Facebook is a great example, or just most forms of media in the United States are generally controlled by very large companies. And so even if that information is pro-social or the content creators on those mediums are are sending pro-social messages, they're still under the, the control and the discretion of people who are in positions of economic and, and political power or potential political power.
0: That would make sense. I think a little bit about the sort of systems that need to be in place for these sorts of crimes to really be committed. And I think in particular of Rachel Brown and her work with CC Niamani in Kenya to try and avoid future elective excuse me, electoral violence, and so,
1: it's yeah, it's great that you bring her up because when I was learning about dangerous speech, I, w- I was learning from her, mostly her work, and also I spoke to her in person, and we had a lot of conversations about this.
0: Nice. I also got a chance to talk to her. She was really great. If you haven't had the chance to look her up, I would very much recommend doing so. I'll try and find a link or two to throw into the uh, episode notes but what was fascinating was going back to it it wasn't necessarily those from higher socioeconomic classes who were responsible for the crafting and mass spread of the messages but it was companies and you know folks at the higher end of the economic spectrum who controlled the mediums as you were pointing out that allowed for this contact to be going on and for the misinformation to be spread quite as quickly as it was
1: absolutely a grievance or a a violent ideology can arise from any class background, but often the, the people in charge of information itself are in the status of elites. Um, I think the next thing that's really important is to just identify the basic content, uh, content that is very common to most forms of dangerous speech. Of course, all dangerous speech takes on the cultural and situational trappings of wherever it is. Um, But there are generally some common themes found throughout the content, if you don't mind me moving on to that. I would be offended if you did not, my friend, please feel free. (laughs) So often just a a short laundry list of the smaller things, like um, it generally is simplistic, overly so, to the point of almost being false. Dangerous speech tends to be easily digestible. You don't have to do much thinking to understand the message. Um, it generally creates concrete group identities also. So it's an us versus them mentality. You know, it's very clear who is us. It's very clear who is them and disregarded any form of middle ground or gray area. Um, and it sets up nicely for a two-sided conflict. Um it makes discrimination and division seem like normal and acceptable. That is one of the major factors. Is it? It says not only is this real, it's what's happening, and we need to we need to see this division as as sort of, if not acceptable, at the very least unavoidable. Um, you, taking another U.S. Um, example is often you'll find. Um, And this is not, this is regardless of um, ideology, it seems, what political spectrum, you, what side you fall on, it seems to be the idea that in our society, it's normalized to believe that divisions between people of various ideologies is absolutely normal and unavoidable, Um, that there's no real effort that should be put into bridging any gaps between ideologies or people who hold those ideologies. It's just how things are.
0: So it's the normalization of misinformation while expertly crafting the us versus them mentality by creating very clear and distinct factions. Yes, factionalization
1: is a huge part of this because without that factionalization, you can't strategize and commit violence on the same level like we were discussing. That makes sense. It also does harm. Often it's directly emotionally harmful regardless of physical violence um, to the, the targets of dangerous speech. And it tends to inspire others to think in dangerous ways about members of other groups. So it's it it makes violence possible is really some of the the most it's the purpose of the speech really is to make the violence possible. But part of that is is dehumanization. Um and that's another main a main factor is it weaponizes stereotypes. So often when you get human groups interacting, stereotypes develop. And while they're generally probably not very positive things they are sort of a sociological um, commonplace from the historical record and um, and the anthropological record. We can see that in many, many, many societies, um, not just European ones, the development of stereotypes between groups was relatively common. Um, but this turns those stereotypes into, a way to identify another person based on their group, and then to think of them as subhuman or outside of humanity. Often, people will be characterized as pests, rodents, animals, pollution, disease, um, parasite, alien, disaster, or some form of supernatural threat that makes them not only subhuman but outside of the hu- outside of humanity entirely. Um, and it doesn't always have to be blatant either. It can be coded in such a way that is not always easy to spot, like calling a group, saying a group is invading someplace or is a flood or a horde, that sort of thing. Or say, we we often use it in terms of class also in our society, like um in, at least in the past, if you talk about like calling somewhere a hive of crime, for example, It uses these words that set some human beings outside of humanity in some way, or make them less human, which makes people more willing to commit violence. It's been found that the less human an opponent is seen as, the more likely and more
0: probably brutal the violence can be. So speaking of that, I think with that exact description of Richard Nixon's Southern Strategy, with the way that he sort of tried to shift the public perception of poverty, because what had happened was, if you think back to, say, the Great Depression, when you we thought about poverty, we thought about a problem that needed to be solved. We didn't criminalize, we didn't otherize, we didn't sort of necessarily characterize those in need as being inferior or inhuman. Yet it feels like, and please stop me if at any point I'm you know being hyperbolic or going down a track you don't necessarily agree with but it seems like what was going on there was aspects of dangerous speech because suddenly poverty became something that needed a war enacted against it right and absolutely so- um you make a great point because
1: that's part of a larger use of dangerous speech in the political field because during the the like you were talking about the great depression not only was it a society wide problem, like unless you were living in the most rarefied, you know, uh, parts of society, you saw poverty. You saw how the great depression affected others. You felt it probably yourself in some some way. Not everyone lived in um, dust bowl poverty, but people felt the poverty and it was seen as we're all in this together. We must take care of it. Was there still divisions based on often race? Yes, absolutely. Racism didn't stop during the Great Depression, obviously. But it was, it was like you said, it was a much more communal struggle. But then by the time of Nixon, if you look at the context of the Cold War, not only was, did there have to be a war on poverty, a criminalization, all these sorts of things, you're seeing the beginning of also the Black Power movement. You're seeing the beginnings of people starting to come into their political voices and also those people tended to be more sympathetic to communism because communism in theory serves those who are who have suffered in poverty and and gives power and political act political um sorry don't think of the word agency, um, agency yes thank you political yes. agency to more of more society than the elites. So you're seeing dangerous speech on multiple levels, dehumanizing the poor, partly to try to keep them from organizing in a way that is dangerous to the elite.
0: That would make sense. So could we, in theory, be characterizing some of the rhetoric against those in the highest stratum of our current economic status and classes? the sort of commentaries about eating the rich or referring to them as somehow subhuman, would that be something that qualifies as dangerous speech or am I just being hyperbolic?
1: No, I, yes, yes, it does. Like I said, dangerous speech can happen regardless of ideology. When it becomes mass atrocity, that has often more to do with the capacity to commit violence. Do most people venting their spleen and having grievances against those with political power over them or who oppress them, is that equal to the dangerous speech being used by those groups? No. Is it still a concern? Absolutely. Just like we saw in Rwanda and Ireland, um, South Sudan, um, even the groups who are oppressed and face mass atrocity are capable of committing atrocities. And if given the chance for violence, those things do happen. Um, generally, when human beings get their their hold on on the ability and the to commit violence on a mass scale, you're going to find people who will do so in either in retribution or due to circumstances or for whatever reason, will commit mass violence. Um and that that even if they're fighting for an ostensibly just cause can happen. So it's something to be aware of how, dangerous speech forms the way we think about issues even if in a moral sense we believe it's on the right side of an issue.
0: So that's interesting that goes along with another theme from episode one where Ian and I were discussing the difficulty especially as we move more into the contemporary era in certain genocides and mass atrocity situations between identifying perpetrator versus victim because it seems like in certain instances, like in uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, in Rwanda, perhaps, and other nations, that it became difficult at times to identify precisely who it was that was the perpetrator and who was the victim. And at times, it seemed like those roles would switch. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, unlike what a lot of, in, and
1: I'm speaking only from my point of view and my background of the sec- segment of culture that i come from in this country but there are no perfect victims is you know is is someone who has uh, had oppression and mass atrocities violence mass violence targeted against them a victim of it yes are they still capable of being a perpetrator of mass violence yes so in cases you can have people who are both the perpetrators and victims of mass violence at the same time. Does that make it much harder to follow up on accountability? Yes, because often we live in punitive systems where the difference between a victim and a perpetrator is very clear cut and needs to be clear cut for those systems to work. So it's, it's a lot more difficult to punish someone when you also
0: see them as a victim of something. So that brings an interesting question to my mind. I think about transitional justice mechanisms, and many of them being the follow-ups to attempt to prevent reoccurrence of mass atrocity and genocide. And I'm wondering if you are familiar with any um, sort of areas in transitional justice that meaningfully address dangerous speech. Um. Yes.
1: I mean, there's a lot of really interesting work going on. Social media has opened the floodgate, the floodgates for dangerous speech, but also for the capacity to build community solutions to trying to deal with them. And often that comes down to more speech, um, to be honest, to set new norms, which we can, which, you know, is part of the main, the main body of how to counter dangerous speech is to keep talking and set new norms. Um, I agree with you and Ian, often it's found both in the research and just in general that censorship really doesn't work. It generally sets a precedent, if not is immediately used to shut down oppressed voices already. So creating new avenues of speech, but also cultural healing processes that change the way people, the. The real problem with dangerous speech um, is it creates this narrative, this way of thinking that is very dangerous and creates violence. Like we're talking about dehumanization, but also tends to create guilt attribution. So it paints a group as being guilty of some past or future crime, and then creates stories around how these things happen. So for example, German rhetoric in the 20th century often blamed, actually not just German, but Christian European rhetoric tended to blame Jewish people for societal hardships. So that's a th- that's a guilt attribution, and then paints a group as a threat. So it says that this group is simultaneously weaker than us, but also stronger than us, and is a threat to our very existence. It's not just a threat to our interests, but our existence is generally the level it gets to. And more often than not, it accuses them of what we want to do so that we're, we're in the right. They want to kill all of us, so we must kill all of them. And so it needs to be almost a, a de-radicalization of a, a moving from a place where your whole world is painted by this to a world that isn't. And that's not easy, but those cultural healing processes can help. So Ireland is a good example of where some of those those ideas are trying to be implemented to bring these two groups that see each other as anathema into common space or Rwanda is where they're doing a lot of those processes that is some of the most powerful examples of that work of how hard Rwanda is as a society trying to change that narrative is it always does it always work no are there problematic aspects that can that can occur Uh, yes especially when a state is involved that is in some way either a a direct successor or a transitional justice affected version of the state that is responsible for violence. Yeah, that can create problems.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Are No, that's not how I wanna ask this question. Is it the responsibility of governments to try and keep a lid on dangerous speech or is that something that's better left to nonprofit the excuse me the NGO field is it you know on the individual how how should that most meaningfully be engaged?
1: I think it has a lot more to do with what what will be most impactful in that particular to X particular audience so I think you'll have to engage all areas but the same in the same way dangerous speech isn't really effective from an untrusted source or an uninfluential source same same difference so let's take an example of in the united states if you had the government speaking to a group that feels that the government is is a is a source of their problems then it's going to come off as disingenuous even if it is you know in an, a commitment to countering mass violence but for people who do trust the government, the state, then that could be a very effective message. Or if a community leader you know, was the one trying to combat this speech, dangerous speech, the community where they're respected, that could be very impactful. But if they were to go to an outsider, someone who doesn't live and fi- and is in a part of that community, they may be not effective at all. So I think it, it has to engage every every area of society targeted to different audiences. One size just doesn't fit all.
0: That makes sense. Can we talk a little bit about the ways to directly counter dangerous speech before an atrocity or mass, wow, before an atrocity or genocide were to happen? Absolutely. There are some pretty
1: good ways to do so and they can be engaged at any level, either as an individual or as a group or through some form of, like you said, nonprofit or state system, these sort of strategies can be implemented. It's just, it's it's difficult because you don't want to introduce you know, new norms of violence. So you have to be, you have to think hard about what you're saying when you say things. But some really basic things that can be done are, um, don't let people be silenced. Often before mass atrocities, perpetrator, perpetrators will try to silence their opposition. So using your platform to promote voices, especially those who are from groups that are being targeted. More importantly, you know, centering those groups often proves the most effective means by which to do so, because that's where the experience is, but that also creates feelings of sympathy too and and kind of engages people in a new conversation. But that also goes for the, dissent, in the op- dissent within the group. It's really important to try to protect moderates within the groups who are starting to mobilize towards violence, because they are an in-group member, which means they have a little more influence and clout, and they help to create a norm of nonviolence or trying to dissent from the group's activities within the group. And often they're amongst the first to be targeted as well because they create a hiccup in the narrative. So these sorts of people who would be viewed as traitors, it's important to protect them too. Even if we don't agree with them, they create a way to slow down the processes of violence.
0: So we should be looking at for moderates from the in-group is what you're suggesting.
1: Absolutely, helping them to speak out, encouraging them to speak out, and then protecting them from the repercussions of speaking out, so showing solidarity. So for example, if in this country, we see a lot of the most violent rhetoric coming from um, what is called the alt-right. So people who are within the conservative factions that are seen as sort of a a rough conglomeration of these groups or connected to these groups. If they're willing to speak out, even if they don't have the best track record, even if we don't agree with them, even if they're often wrong, but they are speaking out against violence. It's important to keep encouraging that behavior because then they can pull parts of parts of the group away from violence. So in the case of, let's say, Republicans, moderate Republicans who basically are now being called traitors for trying to indict the former president or speaking out against violence on January 6th they are pulling group part of that base away from this violent rhetoric by condemning it. Are they always right? Are they, you know, I leave it up to you to take a moral stance, but it is important to have those voices doing what
0: they're doing. They may not always be right, but they certainly are (coughs) (laughs) alt-right. Thank
1: you. Um, But more more importantly, it's creating norms. So speaking out in ways that set norms that are not violent, that are trying to create um, some level of de-escalation, um, that can that can be sort of making dangerous speech seem not normal. So creating like cultural narratives. So for example, if um, you go out and you see a um, a family who's part of a, let's say, hypothetically, part of a group who is underprivileged. In my case, I do not identify as Muslim. So a Muslim family who are often targets of hateful violence and dangerous speech in the United States. If I go out and openly show as a white person acceptance for people of that faith, people living their culture, they're openly living their culture, and then reinforcing the message that people within my group don't accept hatred towards Muslim people, I'm trying, I'm starting to set a new norm that other white people can emulate. So creating those norms, either through how you speak or how you act, that make dangerous speech seem like an aberration, rather than an acceptable fact of life.
0: Interesting. I know that you've been speaking a fair bit about nonviolence, but is there a way that perhaps the measured use of violence, and this is a difficult concept, uh, might be employed as a means of trying to deescalate the effectiveness of dangerous speech. Um, I think that I
1: cannot speak to that on a long term.
0: The research
1: generally says that no. Um, unfortunately, like. Say, for example, I assume that you're, and please correct me if I'm wrong. you're alluding more to the punch Nazis ethic.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've quipped about that in the first episode, certainly.
1: Um, so on the one hand, it can be a deterrent to people voicing their ideology in public that creates dangerous narratives and dangerous norms. On the other hand, it tends to be, it's, it's a form of punishment. Ten, the research tends to say that punishing and shaming people for their ideologies may be a way to get them to stop talking in a space, but they'll find other, another venue to talk in. And it will also generally justify or make them double down on their ideology rather than make them stop perpetrating their ideology or perpetuate
0: their ideology so to that end as an individual practice that i can start implementing in the short term should i no longer be suggesting that we should always punch nazis it's difficult to say
1: because you have to you have to weigh that against where your moral rubicon lies if you know it's it's difficult to say where the boundary lies between where nonviolent means will not achieve an end, a just end and where limited or, you know, targeted violent means must. It's that's a really difficult place to to make a determination. Um, it just does not seem in terms of speech that shaming, punishing, punching has much of an effect on making someone change their mind or changing that norm. It tends to just, justify or drive them underground, or in an even worse case, make them double down and find even more dangerous ideologies or spaces in which more dangerous ideologies live. And then they'll go down that even further down that rabbit hole towards more violent, more more speech that leads them towards violence. I'm not yeah. saying that it's necessarily necessary to be friendly and buddy buddy with people who express hateful or violent rhetoric. But it just it may it may not be that a long-term solution is to punch all of them. But that is a that is, a, you know, everyone listening, you have the ability to, you know, you have your own agency. So do, you know, what you think you must, but it doesn't seem to be terribly effective in terms of speech.
0: Gotcha. So instead of advocating it as a consistent approach, suggested as more of a tempered uh, self protective or community protection approach? Always punch Nazis if they're actively a threat, for example.
1: If, if, if Nazis are walking down the streets with torches and pitchforks trying to lynch someone, then yes, I think perhaps punching a Nazi might be a very effective means in which to deal with the situation because much like any measured violent approach in genocide and mass atrocity prevention, sometimes, Targeted violence is necessary to save human lives. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean it will change the perpetrator's mind. It will just save human lives.
0: And sometimes that's the goal. I imagine that's kind of the sort of utilitarian approach that we're trying to take. Absolutely. Um, The thing with dangerous speech is it's part of,
1: well, every every stream strategy. But part of also countering dangerous speech is going through the post- genocide or or even mid-genocide process of trying to demobilize, you know, people and bring some form of measured coexistence. Um, it won't heal all ills, but the less dangerous speech and the less dangerous narratives there are, the more difficult in theory violence should be because people are become less and less open to it. Um, it's difficult, definitely, when you have prolonged mass atrocities. So when mass atrocities are built into how societies operate themselves, we don't really know enough or don't have the tools yet to really deal with that on a you know, a really Grand basis. I don't think we we have enough evidence, we don't have enough research or practice to really understand how that plays out.
0: That's an interesting concept you just threw out there. Very casually, by the way, and I appreciate it. I'm hoping you can look into, that. you can help me understand that a little bit better. The idea of prolonged mass atrocities being built into a society and how it operates? Sure. So for let's take, for example,
1: um, we can use the United States again. I feel like that's pretty solid ground for this. But like, for example, the United States was, and in many ways still has to deal with the systems of slavery. Slavery is at, at the very least a mass atrocity crime, if not a, actively a genocidal crime. But slavery was also how people made their living, not only just owners, but just the economy ran on. So with, without that form of labor, many people would be in, would not be able to get their basic needs. Or we could take an even wider example of, and this is probably controversial in some sort of quarters, but capitalism requires exploited labor to function, which often leads itself to other forms of violence. So it's hard. That one is a little bit, little bit less shaky than say the slavery example. But when a society or when a society has built these mass atrocity processes, um, like. And even often they link together. So slavery turned into something else. But it has changed how it looks, but our society still has to deal with that legacy, and with the processes like disappearing people, like mass incarceration, is basically mass dis- is warehousing people, and creating ma- uh, ma- situations of mass disappearances. So, but it's also an important part of how our society functions currently. So we just don't have, I think, the tools or the understandings to tackle ways in which math, if a mass atrocity crime becomes institutional, how, that, how to defuse that after it's been such a
0: prolonged experience. Provocative comments. I'm wondering, are there systems besides incarceration that we might be able to make use of in terms of addressing past atrocities so trying to find a way to compensate because clearly i think we, many of us can agree including listeners and you know comment if you do disagree and feel free but it feels like the prison industrial complex is the natural extension of slavery in many ways yes. and so is there a more equitable way to Deal with sort of criminal justice, I suppose.
1: I think there are a lot of there are a lot of answers to that question. Um, I think that it's very difficult to say because I don't think we have a great grasp of how our society works in many in many ways. And I'm not saying I'm sure there are plenty of sociologists and anthropologists who have. A little bit more insight than I do, but in many ways our society is so fractured and factionalized, and has so many communities with differing cultural norms and cultural processes that what works for one may not work for another. Unfortunately, we we all rely on each other for the necessities of life, in ways that produce conflict, um, or in ways that are um actively perpetuating mass mass atrocities, um that I don't think we have a good answer, or we would have we probably would have a, a um a much more solid idea of what to do with the future and what to what to change, what to transform to make a more equitable society. I think if you asked one person uh, what would do that, um you'd get one person's answer and then you could collect. How many ever billion more there are in the United States in terms of people? Um, so, I don't think we have the answer to that yet. But what I do think we have is a, is a start based on the transformative justice and transitional justice that has been done in other societies. Ireland is a great example, Rwanda is a great example. Um, these places where trying to build a new norm from the wreckage of mass atrocity that is more inclusive, more just. It's just, it will have to take on a new and more appropriate format for the country we live in. Because even in both of those examples, you have existing long-term culture, cultural processes that we just may not. The Irish have been the Irish for a very, very, lo- within, you know, the entirety of their living memory, and have a lot of shared cultural processes, Tutsis and Hutus have lived side by side for a very, very, very long time before violence. So these shared contexts we may not have here in the United States.
0: That makes sense. So in terms of trying to alter the way that factions interact with one another because I don't think it makes sense to try and make us all one people and whitewash lived experiences but are there ways that we can meaningfully address past atrocities amongst individual groups that will allow for meaningful coexistence I know that you brought up in particular the examples of Ireland and Rwanda, I'm wondering what it is about those examples that are helping create this sort of reconciliation between the previously warring factions.
1: Um, concentrated and targeted efforts to bridge gaps and to bring people into better knowledge about each other and in co- build points of commonality. Uh, I'm not an expert in either, but I did do a project on Ireland, for example, where there were concerted efforts for young people to spend time at like a summer camp type situation where they learn about each other, they learn about each other's cultures, they see each other's common humanity, and the process works both ways. So the Catholic youth would be learning about the Protestant youth and the Protestant youth about the Catholic youth. And... In, a, in an environment where conflict leads to discussion, n- conflict doesn't lead to violence. Um, and so, it, re- but it requires some concerted effort b- in both directions. It requires open acknowledgement about the importance of doing this. And that doesn't need to be a universal acknowledgement of the importance or a universal um, valuing of it but there needs to be the effort out there publicly being done and being shown to be important. So I think that we begin that process by finding ways to publicly um, learn more about each other if we're using those examples and to find ways to build commonality, common, build an understanding of common humanity and also to to start defeating misinformation. And I think a lot of what the United States is facing in terms of disinformation is misunderstanding the past and not only our own past, but the pasts of other people. And part of that is fantasizing or romanticizing pasts. And that is regardless of ideology or stance. Um, There, unless, you know, We find some, you know, unknown. There's never really been a utopia. Like there's never been a place where disease and violence of some capacity hasn't been, you know, occurred. There have been societies that have more violence or have experienced more catastrophic disease events than others, but we cannot attribute, you know, we cannot romanticize the past in ways that blind us to its problems. We also can't erase the past that is inconvenient to us, or the past that um, that you know. We can't rose tint it. So in the United States, we have to be very clear, very honest about the history of slavery, about the history of colonization, um, but also about the histories of you know our own our own ancestors. So you know, not everything would was just better back in you know x time period, always. So it's hard to say, and this is the part where I, I think I would probably seem a little more controversial is I think it's very common in at least the very liberal spaces, or even, you know, almost, you know, the radical left spaces I've been in for sort of a romanticizing of um, really ancient pasts, or just um, the past in general before um, colonialism or industrialization or whatever, in ways that I think lend themselves to possibly becoming those parts of dangerous speech, like attributing of guilt and creating a a sort of a, uh, everything would be okay except these people ruined it, or everything would be okay because this this practice makes everything bad, is it's become so general that I think it tends to start lending itself towards the creation of dangerous ideologies. It may not become it, but I think it's something to start thinking about.
0: That would make sense. I think about as you were describing that Bosnia, Herzegovina and the Republic of Serbska and the way that they've in the aftermath of the mass atrocities and genocide that have gone on there, decided to simply segregate their populations in a way that different ethnic groups simply don't interact with one another. They don't go to school with one another um, with the possible exception of the city of Birchko uh, where it seems like the very strategy that you're proposing has actually been having some meaningful good there.
1: Yeah, if that is a strategy that is agreed upon that creates a situation of at least some form of nonviolent coexistence, I think it's a possibility. I think it just depends on the situation, how people interact. I think that in some ways it's much easier when you're dealing with an ethnic conflict because often those ethnicities are connected to a geography. people within an ethnic group interact with their own ethnic group and are able to find that sort of are able to find that commonality and are able to maintain that level of segregation in a way that allows them to fulfill their basic needs so that you don't need to interact with another ethnicity. Um, I think that becomes a lot more complicated when you start running into race, um, because race is far more obtuse um, a construct than ethnicity because ethnicity tends to just be rooted in shared cultural practice and in um, a common language or geography, religion, sort of these sort of cultural, these shareable ongoing and um, sort of very connecting cultural processes Whereas with race, you have disparate cultures all being lumped together into one category that is just nondescriptive. it doesn't it doesn't approximate any form of real cultural information other than creating what is essentially a caste system. That is just a good byword for levels of privilege versus an ethnicity, which can create a situ- the same situation. But on the other hand, like you said, You can also go in your hometown, let's say in a place, and be with people who are just like you, share the same language, values, and beliefs. You can all get your basic needs without interacting with someone from another ethnic group, and all is honky dory except for maybe some ethnic tensions, in which case you might get violence. But I don't think that's necessarily a viable solution based on the population, makeup, and just general cultural and historical context of the United States.
0: That makes sense. Um, I think that you have just, however, set up the uh, possible next episode that you could come and speak to us about, which engages the differences between racial and ethnically based forms of violence when it comes to genocide and atrocity prevention. I think that that would be something that folks would be pretty interested in hearing about, if that's something that you would care to speak about in the future
1: um i would definitely be interested yeah thank
0: you solid it's my pleasure we're approaching if not surpass the hour mark and i want to be respectful of your time and that of the listener so colin weldridge thank you so much for joining me today it's been an incredibly educational experience and i hope it's been enjoyable for you
1: absolutely thank you for having me
0: it's my pleasure and as always dear listeners if you have any questions concerns or critiques We'd love to hear them. Feel free to shoot it to me at ASCHWA48 at binghamton.edu. That's ASCHWA48 at binghamton.edu. Colin, thank you once again and have a great day. Thank you.